1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Krista Thomason, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Swarthmore College. Her new book dancing with the devil why bad feelings make life good is just out from oxford university press how could a good life include one with anger or jealousy or spite in her book thomason flips the script on popular ways of dealing with our emotions including neo-stoicism mindfulness and even the prosperity gospel She makes the case that we should get rid of the double standard we have towards good and bad emotions, and that we should not aim to be emotional saints. Instead, because bad emotions are an an essential part of our attachments to ourselves, they help us discover what we care about. Thomason guides the reader through philosophical traditions regarding the relation of emotion to reason, and the various approaches thinkers have come up with to deal with our bad emotions. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Krista Thomason. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh,
1: this should be a very fun um <laughs> uh, <laughs> interview um because you're giving a you know a kind of an interesting twist on the sort of traditional introductory, introductory course question of, you know, what is a good life? You know, mm-hmm. what is the meaning of life? Um where you're kind of flipping the script on how we should think about our so-called bad emotions and, and the place of these emotions, uh, in a good life. Yeah. So I want to, I, you know, before we get to this, I mean, how did you get here? Yeah. (laughs) Good question. And then, you know, how did you get to write this book about, you know, defending the so-called bad emotions?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I always joke with my students that I didn't find philosophy. Philosophy found me. Um, I had gone into undergraduate thinking that I was going to be a theater major because that's what I had done all through high school. And I really loved it. And that's actually how I picked my undergraduate institution. I went to the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, which has a really strong arts program. And uh, I had sort of two things happen to me. One, I started all of my theater classes in my freshman semester, and I decided I actually hated it. (laughs) I hated all of the people I was in classes with. I hated my schedule. I hated everything. Um, And I had also uh, completely on a whim taken a intro to philosophy course because I did not know what philosophy was. I had not been exposed to it in high school. And I, I was like, what's this thing? I don't know what this is. I'm going to take this class. And I had started to fall head over heels in love with it uh, because I, I was like, oh my gosh, here is this group of people that is asking all of the big life questions that I feel like have plagued me since I could remember. And I, it felt very, I felt very at home in philosophy. Uh, and so then the end of my freshman year came and it, it was time to sort of, you know, make the decision. And I thought, you know, I really can't do this theater thing for this, these four years, this is making me miserable. Huh. And I thought, well, what's the only other thing I've loved that I I loved as much as theater and it was philosophy. And so I thought, well, let me just take some more philosophy classes and see how it goes. Uh, and my experiences were fabulous and I just kept loving it. And I thought, okay, this is this is what I'm gonna major in. This is the thing I'm gonna do. So I switched in philosophy. Um, I had no designs to be a PhD or go to graduate school. So I'm a, I'm a first generation college student. Neither of my parents had gone to college. So I kind of didn't think, you know, graduate school was a thing people did. Um, and it wasn't until my mentors in undergraduate started asking me, you know, what are you going to do after you graduate? Have you ever thought about going to graduate school? And I was like, well, no, I guess I hadn't. But they were like, well, maybe you should think about it. And I thought, oh, I don't know, maybe. Um, so I took, uh, I graduated and I took a couple of years off and I worked just a regular old nine to five job. And I thought, oh, no, I hate this. This is terrible. Uh, I miss philosophy and I miss thinking for my life. And so I was like, you know what, uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to grad school. So after I would come home after work and work on my writing sample and all my graduate school applications. Um, and I did that, uh, uh, for a while. And so, yeah, that was, uh, got into the university of Illinois and that's where I went and did my PhD. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, but that's where I that's where I started to learn about uh, moral psychology. So it was it was in my advisor class, David Sussman, who um, taught the, the great book by um, Jeffrey Murphy and Gene Hampton uh, called Forgiveness and Mercy. And uh, that was the moment where I thought, oh, wow, I didn't realize philosophers thought about emotions. And that's really cool. And that maybe that's something that I want to think about. And so it was after that, that I sort of just kind of started throwing all of my energy into thinking about emotions. And my, my first project was on shame. That's what my first book was about. And it was through writing that first book that I decided I wanted to write another book and I wanted to write it about negative emotions kind of in general. Um, and then I decided, I took the leap and decided I wanted that book to be a, a book that was geared toward a public audience rather than... Uh, rather than a, an academic audience, because I think lots of people struggle with their negative emotions. And I thought this maybe this is a place where philosophy can help.
1: Yeah. Good. Good. Well, you start, you know, you, you have a couple of uh, metaphors, uh, you know, for bad feelings. You know, one is, of course, the, the weed analogy or the weed metaphor that these are things that we you know ought to eradicate, uh, which, of course, we never do. Um, whether they're weeds or emotions, <laughs> uh, and then um, and then you you settle on uh, the worm as as the as the right metaphor, and you, this kind of goes through you know from the beginning of the book to the the very end when you return to the worm. Um, can you can you explain a bit about your approach in general? You know, perhaps using the the weed analogy.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I I kind of came to the weed analogy. I was reading some. Um... Oh, the worm uh, I, analogy. I meant sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean I can, They're they're related, so I can yeah. I can sort of talk. About that. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I started off with the weed analogy because I think that's a really common way that people talk about their negative emotions. And as a matter of fact, it was funny because when I first started working on the book, I was reading an article in the New York Times about it was you know they have the Times has these articles occasionally that's like what should you do with your negative emotions and and this was one of those um, articles, and in it, so I'm sitting here like thinking about the book, planning the book, and in it. A person uses the very analogy. They use the weed analogy and they say negative emotions are like the weeds. If you don't do something about them, they're gonna take over and they're gonna spoil the garden if the garden is your life, right? And so I thought, oh my God, that's literally the metaphor that I was just thinking about using. And here somebody's used it. So it's really, it's a really common metaphor, right? That the negative emotions are are like the weeds and you've got to do something. And that, that something can be different things. That something can be, you know, you want to eradicate them so you get like the strongest weed killer that you can find and you just try to douse them until they don't come back. Or you can have a more kind of like med- management metaphor where you, you know, you're going to be the person who goes out every day and kind of like plucks the little seedlings out so that they don't get too big and you're going to be kind of diligent about it. Um, but regardless of which strategy you use, the basic thought is the same. This is something you have to battle. You've got to do something about them because if you don't, they're going to wreck the place. And so I decided... I want this to be different. I want this metaphor to be different. I don't think negative emotions are best thought of as the weeds that are going to spoil the garden. I think they're better thought of as the worms. So, Worms are a little bit icky. They're a little bit slimy. I mean, some people have deep affections for them, but you know, the, lots of people think are a little bit squeamish about it. They're kind of gross. They're kind of wriggly. Um, when you look at the garden, I think you would sort of prefer not to think about the worms that are sort of squirming underneath the dirt. So they make people a little bit squeamish. But if it's not for the worms, your soil in your garden doesn't have the richness that it needs for your flowers to grow. And so I started thinking that's what negative emotions are like. They are the things that give our lives richness and texture. And without them, we would, our lives would be sort of flattened out and we would lose some of that richness and texture, even if they're a little bit gross and we maybe want to kind of pretend that they're not there. So I want people to start thinking about their negative emotions as worms rather than weeds.
1: Good, good. Okay, so... Um... I mean, in the, in the course of the book, you, you discuss, you know, a number of, you know, thinkers, I'll put it, philosophers, literary figures, and so so on, who have, you know, considered the, you know, various negative emotions, anger, uh, you know, you talk specifically at the end of things like anger and jealousy and, um, uh, schadenfreude, you know, things like that, um. Um, and you, you sort of give a nice historical tour in a way of, you know, various approaches to the emotions, but the overall gist is, uh, we need to control them if not, you know, be able maybe to eradicate them. I mean, the weed metaphor is a good one, I think, in the sense that for the most part, thinkers have treated the, the bad emotions as, things that need to be controlled in some way uh, rather than embraced in some way. And I'm taking, I take it that that is your, the basic difference that you want to make because you, you don't want to say, Hey, just let them, let your emotions rip, do whatever you want. You know, that, that isn't what you're advocating. And I don't, and I think it would be a, a, a poor thing if if people took away from this interview or the book that that is what you're right. reading, right? So, so we need to be a little bit more subtle about what exactly you mean mm-hmm. when you're saying that emotions, you know, bad emotions, sorry, um, you know, make life, you know, richer, uh, you know, life would be flatter without them. Um, can you be a little bit more specific about what exactly... You are advocating, and perhaps in comparison with contemporary approaches like you know, stoicism is is has had a big resurgence recently, and of course, you know the mindfulness. Um, and I think you mentioned the prosperity gospel at one point. You know, you I think you spend more time on stoicism and and neo stoicism and things like that. So, what are you advocating that these that contrasts your view with, with these more popular views of dealing with the emotions. Sure.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so let me start with kind of the, the more general claim. Um, so I would love it if we could treat our negative emotions actually kind of similarly to the way we treat our positive emotions. We tend to, I think this is, and so I argue for this in the book. I think there's a kind of emotion double standard. So I think we we think of our positive emotions as mostly fine. Um, we don't terribly get worried about whether or not we'll if we feel joy. We're never going to stop feeling joy. Um, nobody ever tells you to process your joy. Um, <laughs> nobody ever tells you that you need to manage your joy. Right? We have this kind of view about negative about positive emotions that at the very least they're totally unproblematic. And then at the best, they're sort of like the, you know, they're the, they betray like great character or something like that. There's, there's, they're just always, there's nothing ever bad happens with positive emotions. So on the one hand, that's not totally true because we do sometimes talk about, there are some downsides to positive emotions Mm -hmm. because sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, our joy can be, I think, uh, you know, I think there's ways that people's joy is a kind of delusion. Um, they Sometimes people just want to tell themselves that everything is fine, even when it's not. Uh, sometimes, you know, I, you mentioned the prosperity gospel. This is something that is part of what I call the, the pro-positivity zeitgeist, particularly in the U.S., and it has a long tradition in the U.S. of being really influential in a bunch of different areas of life, um, where if you just like the basics of the prosperity gospel or if you if you think positively, good things will happen to you. And and these days it's it's on like TikTok as like manifesting and and that sort of stuff and so it has this this but the basic claim is the same if you if you think positive things and you feel positive things then good things will happen and your life will be happy um, but that's a kind of delusion right like that's not how life actually works uh, so so we're we have this kind of overly romantic view of positive emotions when if we think about it you know, we'll recognize that, and people have adages about, you know, love is blind and, um, you know, it pulls the wool over your eyes and they have, they warn about the way that love can cloud your judgment. So it's not as though positive emotions are are always fine. Um, And, and yet negative emotions, like, why can't I say the same thing about negative emotions is really the question that I have, right? Why can't I say, yeah, sometimes they're, They're a problem in the same way that negative positive emotions are sometimes a problem, Um, but they actually because they are emotions in the same way positive emotions are they're going to work basically the same way we're going to feel them for a little while and then eventually we're going to stop. We attribute to negative emotions all of these kind of, you know, borderline mystical powers that they can possess us and take us over and they can eat us up from the inside. They're like monsters. They're like cancers. They're like toxins. Um, and, And we have and they're like always just on the edge of getting out of control and sort of like you're going to fly into a berserker rage and wreck everything around you. If you feel anger for too long, we have this, we sort of imbue negative emotions with this kind of like demonic power that we don't attribute to positive emotions. Nobody's ever going to get worried if the joy is going to possess you. So if we can just start from a place of saying, well, you know, look, maybe positive and negative emotions are not as far apart or not as different as we think, you know, they can be complicated Um, They can all have downsides to them. They can all basically be, you know, but they're they're all emotions nonetheless. If I can get people to sort of join me on that plateau, my hope is that they might join me in thinking, okay, well, if that's right, is there any positive role that negative emotions play in your life? And so that's where I want to argue that um, your your negative emotions work the same way your positive emotions do. In that, and philosophers have argued this for a long time, emotions are ways of caring about things. So when you are invested in something and something matters to you, your emotions will show that. So of course, philosophy is my example. Um, you know, I'm committed to philosophy. I'm invested in it. It's a major part of my life. That means I'm going to feel a lot of different ways about it. That of course means I'm going to feel positive things about it. I'm going to be excited to go to a conference. I'm going to be, you know, really um, rapt of attention for a new philosophy book. But that's also going to include negative emotions. I'm going to be angry when someone says something really ignorant and terrible about philosophy. I'm going to be disappointed when my students turn their noses up at the stuff that I teach in class. Those emotions are playing the same role. They're all ways that I'm invested in something. So what I want to argue is that your negative emotions are just part of your investment in your life, the things that matter to you. And it's okay for you to feel them because it's okay for you to be invested in your life and to be invested in um, trying to find meaning in it and being attached to it. And so I think that's the, the sense in which negative emotions are actually part of a meaningful life mm-hmm. because you have to have that sort of attachment to your life and investment in it um, and having that investment is
0: going to come along with these negative emotions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Okay. So how, I mean, as you're talking, I was thinking sounds kind of Aristotelian golden meanish, right? <laughs> uh, you know, cause he, uh-huh. he, he, you know, he clearly, you know, he seems to have a very, a very similar sort of view of, you know, there's the right time to feel the right mm. amount of emotion in the mm-hmm. right place. You know, and and juggling all these things is is, you know, I mean, and so on and so forth, you know, it gets you, you know, virtue ethics, right? <laughs> um, right? Uh you know, so he seems to have a very, you know, balanced attitude about the role of emotions in our in our lives. We, you know, doesn't, you know, say no, we shouldn't be having them, but mm-hmm. the point is to have them in, you know, to the right degree, in the right place, mm-hmm. at the right time. But, um So how would your view, um, you know, relate to, uh, to, to Aristotle's view in terms of what you call the double standard? He doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to have, he just has one standard, the golden Mm -hmm. Mm mean, and that applies to any of them, right? Right. Any emotional responses. Mm -hmm. Um, How is your view different from that?
2: Right. So I think Aristotle, so if we're thinking about kind of the ranges in the history of philosophy, I think there's some ways in which Aristotle, and I also put Confucius in the same category, uh-huh. um, there are some ways that Aristotle is a little bit of an improvement over the more kind of radical takes on emotions that you might think of, like I associate them with the Stoics and, and of course some like Gandhi and some of the Indic tradition is I think have this kind of, you know, this view of, of negative emotions that we got to get rid of them. So Aristotle, you might look at Aristotle and Confucius and say, oh, that's an improvement on that claim because they're saying, oh, no, 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 negative emotions are good, actually, or they're fine. They're just fine in some cases uh, and they do have a valuable role to play, but we just have to make sure that we manage them right. And we have to always feel them at a time when it's appropriate. And we have to um, make sure we don't feel too much or too little and kind of aim for that golden meat. Um, The thing that I think Confucius and Aristotle get wrong is that they don't really let your emotional life have enough independence. Mm-hmm. And so this is, I think, in philosophy, this is the the price that that um, philosophers are willing to pay to defend their to defend the role of negative emotions. When you read even contemporary defenses of negative emotions, I think, do this. They will say, well, it's fine as long as you're just feeling the right kind of this emotion or the right amount or at the right time. So this is the Aristotelian view is very popular, I think mm-hmm. um, that I think there's two things that that gets wrong. One, I think it overestimates how much influence we actually do have over our emotional life. I think people, I think this is a familiar experience people have. I think people have tried really hard to stop themselves from feeling something that they do um, and, and they failed at that. I think people have tried really hard to kind of make themselves feel something. Like, think about how many people have tried to convince themselves that they're happy with their lives when, in fact, they're not. Um, I think people have do that quite a bit, and they usually fail. And I think our emotional life is much more surprising to us, uh, shocking to us. It can scare us a little. It can take us off guard. So I think they overestimate just how much control we have over our emotions. But even if they didn't overestimate that control, I think we actually shouldn't want as much control over our emotions as Aristotle wants us to have. And the reason I say that is because emotions help us with this discovery role in what we care about. So sometimes, and this is, I think, a a thing that I'm not sure Aristotle would agree with me on. I think sometimes your emotions know better than you do about what you care about and what matters to you so I'm going to give you my example I started with actually at the beginning which is I was sure I wanted to be a theater major (laughs) and uh, that was the thing that I was committed to and it took me a while to really accept that the misery that I was experiencing in my classes was because I didn't actually want to be a theater major anymore um, but I was miserable for a long time, and I tried to explain that to myself in a bunch of different ways because I wouldn't give up on the view that, as a matter of fact, I was supposed to be a theater major. That was the thing I was supposed to do with my life. So my emotions were telling me that something wasn't right before I had that realization. Now, if there's a conflict between judgment and emotion, and we always think judgment's supposed to win out then that means we're always going to say, what I judge is right, and my emotion is the thing that's got to give it up. But what if it's the case that your emotion's right and your judgment's wrong? Because your judgment is based on some story or narrative you've told you about, you have told yourself about what you care about and who you are. We know there's all sorts of ways that people do that to themselves, right? They think like, oh, I have to think this and because I'm this kind of person, where this is the right way to live a life, where this is what's appropriate. Um, And sometimes we're wrong about that. And so I think our emotions have this role to play that if they don't have enough of a leash, if we try to keep them on a really short leash, they can't play that discovery role that they're meant to play in our lives.
1: Mm. So would you but but then from the other side, would you agree, say, with, you know, Hume or something that, you know, uh, you know, reason is the is the slave, I guess, of the passion's?
2: I guess I, I just think they're sort of in a partnership in some ways, right? Uh-huh. The, and I don't I don't necessarily want to make a super sharp distinction between the two things, right? I mean, it's it's definitely true that I think, you know, our, our emotions and our judgments can be at odds with one another. Um, sometimes judgment's right and emotions wrong, sometimes emotions right and judgments wrong. And it's not obvious, I think from the get-go, um, which one of them is gonna be right in any particular occasion. Right. Well, okay.
1: So let me, so stoicism, I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's gotten a resurgence. It's popular and I've probably engaged in it a bit myself, you know, because it's a, uh, it's a pretty good philosophy. <laughs> but, um, for it, you know? in, any, in any case, um, what, how, how, so, so we're talking about emotions, but of course the main thing with the bad emotions is not the emotions themselves, but the actions that you know, they cause. Um, so it's one thing to, you know, you know, like acknowledge your anger and then let it go or, you know, a, a, you know, process, you know, your anger in a particular context or your unhappiness in a particular context, right. The theater major thing. Um, uh, and in some cases, you know, in that particular case, you had that emotion and it, and it, you know, you acted on it. But of course, in other cases, you might have that very same emotion and, you know, you don't act on it or you should not for, for social reasons. Um, and a lot of the negativity, you might say of the negative emotions or the emotions that are classified as negative, is not really so much directed at the emotion themselves, but at the consequences. Um, And you can, you know, think of, you know, stoicism as a, you know, you know, tried and true, you know, approach to that is where you're not, you know, again, forgive me if I'm not, you know, you know, channeling Epictetus or any of these people directly. But, you know, it's not like you deny that you are, you know, angry or frustrated or, you know, feel schadenfreude or something. Uh, but that you know, in various ways, you sort of recognize, yeah. But I can't really, I can't do what I would really like to, uh, because that would just not be a you know socially either acceptable or you know it, it would harm other people. For example, um, so I mean, what's the difference then? You know, again, from the stoic-ish perspective, you know, between say acknowledging the uh, the negative emotions uh but then you know not acting on them in certain ways letting them go and then the sort of approach that you are advocating
2: sure yeah so so a couple different things about about that but let me start with the letting it go part and here's the part where i think i disagree with the stoics right so up, up to a certain point i think the stoics and i are on the same page um uh, acknowledge the emotion, uh, recognize that it's going to come, right? that All that's good. The Stoics then go and let it go. And that's the part where I want to say, but why? Like, why do I have to let it go? If there's nothing wrong with it, then wh- what's the problem with me just feeling it? Now, there's, and in fact, thinking that there's something valuable in me experiencing that emotion. Now, that doesn't then necessitate anything about action. And so this is a, I think this is a disagreement that I have with some of the contemporary philosophers of emotion. I think there are lots of people who think, particularly negative emotions, have some clear causal outcome attached to them. They're, it's what's sometimes called the motivational tendency of the emotion. So anger, for example, they will say part of what it means to feel anger is to be motivated to hurt someone else, something like that. That's the part where I think I just disagree that that is true of emotions. So I think that because and the reason I disagree is because if you actually think about those super wide variety of expressions of emotions, people do a million different things with their anger. Right. Depending on a whole bunch of different sorts of things. Right. So it could be how you're socialized. There's gendered elements to this. There are different cultural elements to this. Um, I think there is actually a much wider uh, range of things that count as expressing an emotion than the motivational tendency account tends to think. Right, the motivational ten- tendency account tends to think there's some one or or clear set, small set of actions that you will want to take or be motivated to take because you're feeling this emotion. I think what people look at as the as the motivational tendency for an emotion is actually better identified as a way that we tend to cope with the emotion. So the subjective experience of negative emotions oftentimes is difficult and challenging. And it can be not particularly pleasant. That's not always true, but a lot of times it is. Because I think we do not know particularly well how to just experience something unpleasant In part because of the very strong tendency of the kind of like pro positivity zeitgeist that you're never supposed to feel bad. And also in part because of the very bad reputation that negative emotions have, in part because we are not encouraged to do things like articulate how we feel and talk about it. We have this tendency to sort of reach for a variety of coping mechanisms to help us get over or deal with that unpleasant feeling that the negative emotion has. So anger is going to be my case for this. Um, I think we, people are like, oh, you lash out in anger. You lash out and hurt somebody. I think that is, and I'm partially borrowing this from Owen Flanagan, I think that's not, a, that's not a motivational tendency of anger. That's a way we cope with anger. We decide, I don't like sitting here feeling insulted, feeling slighted, feeling like someone's sort of like treading on me. And so because I don't like that feeling, I'm going to do something that's going to help me get over that feeling. And doing something is lashing out, is Punching a hole in the wall is, you know, uh, saying something hurtful to someone else, and doing that thing is actually what is alleviating the pain that anger is bringing. So what I want to say is, there's a million different kinds of reactions you could have to that painful subjective experience that anger is is giving you. Lashing out is one of those, but there's also a bunch of other. Ones. So like, people turn inwards in anger. People just try to like stamp it down. There's a lot of different responses we could have to that pain, um, and it's not necessarily the case that you're gonna do any one of those particular actions that anger is typically associated with. So. The way I like to put it is, um, yeah, there are plenty of moments in your life where you can't give a lot of attention to the emotions that you're feeling. There are plenty of moments in your life when you can't express the emotion precisely the way that you would like to. The very same thing is true about your thoughts. You have lots of reasons to not speak your every thought out loud. And there are plenty of reasons for you not to attend to the various thoughts that you have. But then no one ever turns around and says, you got to get rid of those thoughts, because expressing them is a problem, because dwelling on them is a problem. But people then turn around and say that about negative emotions, though.
1: Yeah. um, But I mean, two things are occurring to me. You know, one is that, you know, again, this could have the 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 social effect of emotions i mean in general the emotions that we consider bad are ones that are generally if if acted on in various ways um and there can be a lot of different ways that's true um but they tend to be destructive of 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 society they 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 don't help uh help keep society together let's put it that way um and so you know one of the reason why they're bad is because they're socially bad um and i don't it's, i'm i'm not um yeah there are different ways of responding say to anger but some of them and we can just sort of you know maybe we don't say maybe we say with thought you know we don't say we'll get rid of the thought but we do say you know get rid of the anger but of course, the reason we do that is because, uh, you know, a, a a certain number of people uh, will act in ways that do, in fact, have negative consequences on, on society. And uh, so there's so there's that that you know that sort of difference between saying no, you know, you know, leaving the thoughts alone, mm-hmm. but not wanting to leave the the anger or you know whatever alone. Um, and then from a wider perspective, it sounds like you're advocating, again, a complete overhaul of society <laughs> where the only way we could possibly implement the sort of, you know, more positive or balanced view of our emotions is to actually have a complete redo of of society and the way it the the way we express our emotions in
2: in standard ways so i think there are lots of feminist philosophers for example who would disagree with the idea that anger sort of threatens social life because there's lots of people who think that Anger is actually an extremely important emotion for political reform, for example. So I don't I don't necessarily hold this view but but other people do. So so I think there's a, a sort of a disagreement about the extent to which negative emotions really are damaging to social life, I think there's lots of feminists who would argue that as a matter of fact, anger is extremely important for improving social life because it is the thing, right? They believe, they're the ones who, who believe there's this, you know, really deep epistemic role for emotions to play. Anger is a thing that alerts me to injustice and it is also a thing that helps me Get, motivate myself to do something about that injustice. So I think there is a disagreement about just how dangerous to social life these emotions are. I would want to say oftentimes I think we we come to that view because and this is another place where the negative, where the sort of emotion double standard comes in. We have this tendency when we think about negative emotions to think about their worst or most destructive instances rather than thinking about their average everyday mundane instances so uh, being somebody who's trained in the history of philosophy um and and who you know really loves all the history of philosophy it's it's telling to me that that people have been thinking philosophers have been thinking about negative emotions for eons so they've been with us for eons and Most of us, I think, in our normal lives have plenty of examples where we've been angry, sometimes even really angry, at the people we love the most. So people often make this assumption that, you know, anger, for example, is incompatible with fellowship. But that cannot be true because we love deeply the people we are often really, really, really angry with. And we get over that anger and we repair the relationship, but it doesn't mean we suddenly stop loving people just because we get angry with them. So we tend to go for, you know, the worst possible cases. When we think of envy, for example, we often think of Iago from Othello. So we'll go to like a Shakespearean villain who destroys everyone's lives, Um, because of his envy but we won't think about the sort of average everyday mundane cases of envy that are indeed I think ubiquitous that lots of us feel in lots of different circumstances and again just like positive emotions we feel that the reason they don't destroy our lives is because we feel them for a little while and then we get over them in the same way positive emotions do but there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with feeling them for a little while in the same way there's nothing wrong with feeling positive emotions for a little while so i think some of the sort of the the reputation that negative emotions have as these kind of like society destroying things is i think exaggerated i think it's a bit overblown because we typically pick sort of the worst possible instances and we think very little about the very very mundane instances of negative emotions
1: okay so let me uh, you know, one of the things when you you talk at the end, you 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 go through, you know, anger, you know, mm-hmm. particular cases. And yeah. what well, one of them, you know, that I was would have loved to have hear heard about and mm-hmm. and which maybe I invite you to talk about now is greed or or avarice, mm-hmm. one of the mm-hmm. seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what uh where, where what's the upside <laughs> of greed?
2: Well, so I, I don't actually know if greed is an emotion. I think that's one of the reasons I sort of left it out. I mean, greed is, in my mind, a desire. So it's a desire to have, and it's, and it's specifically a desire to have, not a, like, I think, so this is, it's really to the envy chapter. So I think we feel envy when we see people enjoying something that we want for ourselves, and we wish we had that thing. And so that's where envy comes from, right? And I and in the chapter, I argue there's not really anything wrong with that because we are, you know, y- your vision of what you want for your life contains certain things. And I think when we get suspicious of envy, we typically think of it as like, oh, it's because it's all materialistic desires. But we can have, you know, we can be envious of people for a lot of different things. I'm deeply envious of people who can dance well. I cannot dance well. And when other people, when I watch other people dancing, I'm like, oh, I'm so envious of the dancing, right? And it's... um. You know, I can. So so. there's lots of things you can be envious about that are not materialistic things. So the reason I think that's fine is because it I think it's fine for people to have a, a sort of vision for how they want their life to go. And your vision for your, how you want your life to go is going to include certain things. Some of those things are material. Some of those things are not material. And your envy is a kind of way of like mourning the fact that you don't have those things in your life. Um, greed, it seems to me, is is about Is specifically about not just wanting things and having those things sort of for your life in the way that envy is, but greed seems to be specifically about having lots and lots where that seems to require having more than other people. And so... But again, I think that's more like a desire. Greed is more like a desire. It's more like a vice than it is a feeling. There's probably a bunch of different feelings that go along with greed. Envy might be one of them. But that kind of like the covetousness of greed, it seems to me, is is sort of, or not, or not the covetousness, but like the, the sort of like grasping nature of greed. It seems to me is more like a desire. Uh-huh.
1: So would you? Uh, but I don't think you would want to classify, reclassify bad emotions or seven deadly sins or whatever mm-hmm. as as all as vices, right? Only no. some of them, right? So what is the what then is the relationship between? Uh, is it, is it just that you know again back to the Aristotelian mm-hmm. you know view uh, you know anger is fine mm-hmm. and acting on it is fine. Uh, But it's when it becomes, you know, way too far, you know, from Mm -hmm. his golden mean that it becomes a vice. Right. uh, And so when you you reclassify greed, not as an emotion, but instead as a desire, um, it kind of sounds a little bit like, well, I don't really want to extol greed, so I'm just going to not include it in the types of things that I want to extol.
2: Sure. I mean, I just, I, that and I just don't, I mean, that's, I just don't think it's an emotion. I don't think it's an emotion. I think it's a desire. Now, there are, now the emotions that I talk about in the book, they too can become vices. So I do want to make the distinction between a vice that might be like being an envious person versus feelings of envy. So those are two different things, on my view um vices i think the negative emotions become vices when they become character traits and that's when that's when we're sort of in and so in that at that point i think maybe aristotle and i are like of a piece here when it's if something becomes a part of your character then we need to worry about it um now the the what i do want to say though is that the vice of envy may actually not have as close a connection to feelings of envy as people have traditionally thought. I think it is often the case that when you think about the people that you know who are very envious people or the people you know who are very angry people, when you start trying to describe what's wrong with them, I think oftentimes what you start doing is talking about the sense of self that they have. So you start saying that, for example, you know, the person who's envious. That person can't enjoy the things that they do have. They're always so focused on the things that other people have. Or they think that, you know, every time somebody has something good happen to them, that somehow it reflects poorly on them, even if it's not related. So that I think we start, I think once we start trying to articulate what's wrong with people who have these vices, oftentimes we start getting into there's something messed up about their sense of self. So that is perfectly consistent with the view that I defend in the book, because negative emotions are often about, they are ways of you caring about yourself. If your sense of self is, um you know, if something is kind of flawed about it, or if it's sort of distorted in a certain way, your emotional life is going to reflect that. So if you do have a kind of sense of yourself as kind of constantly wanting of your life is, you know, deeply not how you pictured it. If you think that, you know, if you're a deeply competitive person and so you think that everyone else's gain is your loss, sure, you are going to feel a lot of envy because that's the role that envy plays in your life. But that doesn't mean that you feeling loss of envy is what has caused you to become an envious person. So your feelings of envy, in my mind, are more like a symptom than they are a cause. The, the actual cause is there's something kind of screwed up about your sense of self, and that's what's leading you to feel lots more feelings of envy than other people feel. And I think the same thing is true of anger.
1: So would you, uh, would you recommend then looking closer to how we develop our sense of selves? Mm-hmm. I would, first, you know, would. and then just say the emotions kind
2: of fall out of that. Mhm. Yeah, I would. And I think that that's the I think most of the times when we're critical of people who have these kinds of, you know, overactive, you know, negative emotions, it's it's the sense of self that's going that's the problem. And so part a lot of what and I think a lot of what is what I try to sort of say in the book is that um partly we are not so great at figuring out how to Um, live with ourselves. And we kind of need to do that a little bit better. And, uh, but I don't want us to do that so that we can get rid of negative emotions. Like that's not the goal. The goal is having a good, honest sense of self and knowing how to love it even though it can be kind of screwed up and even though it can be a little bit malformed and it's a little fragile um, doing that well and knowing how to love ourselves. Well, doesn't mean if I do that, then all of a sudden all my negative emotions will go away. And that I don't want that to be the motivation that people have to, you know, have a good sense of self is so that their negative emotions go away. I think you can have a good sense of self and have negative emotions. Those two things are perfectly compatible. And in fact, that's what's going to happen. When you care about yourself, you're going to feel these bad feelings and that's going to be fine. Um, but if these, if the feelings start to get to the point where, you know, something seems to be wrong, I think interrogating the sense of self is the thing to do. Ooh,
1: okay. So, I mean, uh, so in, in a way, I mean, are, you know, all these philosophical traditions that you have, uh, that you go through, uh, in terms of, you know, emotion management, uh, in some way, uh, they, they don't all presuppose a self. I mean, one of, of course, one of the major, you know, non-self views that you, that you talk about is, is, uh, I think it's the Buddhist tradition. Um, and given this close, uh, you know, relationship that you, you know, that you're thinking of between, uh you know the negative emotions as being as you put it you know part of your investment in your own life right so it's it's a form of of expressing of oneself and therefore we should embrace it at least in that sense but the Buddhists kind of get at exactly that root which is uh you know attachment to self you know, as an individual self, you know, that that is the problem. Um, So how do you how do you navigate that issue? I mean, it would seem that you might want to advocate that sort of a a Buddhist uh, Buddhist view. Uh,
2: The Buddhists and I uh, actually agree on some pretty fundamental things in the following sense. Uh, I think negative emotions are part of the attachment to the self. They also think negative emotions are the attachment to the self where they think that's a reason to get rid of both the self and negative emotions. I think that's a reason to keep both the self and the negative emotions. So where our sort of fundamental bedrock disagreement is, is whether or not having a sense of self is valuable. They will say, yeah, they will say no. (laughs) And I will say yes, (laughs) because we have, very different visions of what sort of the way, the right way to see the world is, right? So I think the thing with the Buddhists is, um, they have a very thick metaphysical picture. um, And that thick metaphysical picture is, you know, that the self is mere illusion, and that what we ought to be caring about, and this is not this is not every Buddhist, so you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna make claims about them as a whole. But um and this is also in the Indic tradition and in Hinduism, right? That there is Even if you do buy into a sense of self, the sense of self that most people operate with is the illusion part. And if there is some sense of self, maybe there's not, the thing that you're supposed to be aiming at is enlightenment. Sometimes like in Gandhi, that will be the enlightenment of the Atman, of the self. But then sometimes for the Buddhist, that will be accepting the idea that there is no self, but that that's also enlightenment, right? So the picture is the best kind of life is the one that aims toward enlightenment. And that's the part where I just disagree with them about what counts as a meaningful life. So I don't think a meaningful life is one that is aimed at sort of nirvana or aimed at spiritual enlightenment. um, And that because doing that is going to require basically getting rid of this kind of entire... You have to change fundamentally change your orientation toward the regular stuff in your life, your vision of human life, if you want to be a Buddhist or you want to be a Hindu of the kind that are, the ones that I talk about in the book and that philosophical tradition, you've got to see regular human life as somehow you have to reorient yourself radically toward that thing as that thing is either not real or not worth wanting. And that's the part where where the two of us disagree. I think I think regular human life is worth wanting.
1: Okay. Um. Good. I mean, I'm uh I'm kind of looking at the clock here and I want to make sure that we don't that we don't run out of uh around a time so there's a there's a lot of further discussion that that we could have for sure um you know particularly on this on this last uh uh this last issue of you know the value of the self that we have but let me let me just ask one sort of final substantive question is there is an implication here you know even assuming valuing the self is the right way to go uh there's also you know and you mentioned before character traits there's you know again from a from a existential perspective you know Sartre, for of those people you know the self is something that is created it's not given and then you express it in various sorts of emotions both bad and good um and so how would your picture, I mean, assuming that, you know, a self is itself not a fixed thing is a process that in turn affects, you know, your behavior, how people, how people respond to you, which in turn affects the self and the emotions. And it's kind of a big loop, you know, there's no, you know, it's not just a single, you know, kind of feed forward causal, you know, connection here between you have a self and then uh, you know, disordered selves will, will act in certain ways. Um, how do you, uh, how do you see that sort of, you know, interactive, uh, process of expressing emotions, feeling emotions, creating a self, responding to different, you know, how people respond to you, and that kind of thing. How do how do you see that that though the relationships between those if it's not a simple feedforward relationship.
2: Yeah, the, the short answer to that is yes, <laughs> in the sense <laughs> that it is, I think of the self is an ongoing project. Um, so I am I'm actually, you know, the existentialists, Plato and the existentialists were my first philosophical loves. And so uh, you know, I I have actually deep affinity with the existentialists insofar as I think that's right. I think the self is something we have to make and it's something that we create, and it's something that um we have to sort of find meaning in our lives. Uh it's not necessarily gonna come prepackaged to us. So I do think um we are, I think we're under a certain amount of what I'm gonna call practical pressure to develop a sense of self and that doesn't mean that sense of self has to be static that doesn't mean it can't change that doesn't mean we need to tell some grand narrative about ourselves or have some sense that it's deeply natural or any of that stuff but i do think we as human beings in the course of living a life we kind of want to know who we are you know we we care about self knowledge like that matters even if there's no stable, pre-existing thing that's the self. So I like to think of it as, as a kind of a practical project. Selfhood is a practical project. It's a thing that we go through our whole lives. Um, and it's a thing that our self is a thing we create. It's a thing we revise. It's a thing that we, sometimes it's a thing we feel like we discover. We have a really dynamic relationship to ourselves. And so part of, I think, the in some of the motivation for the book was thinking about Um, that project and how emotions fit into that project uh, and how they can actually be um, a thing that helps us know ourselves and discover ourselves and make ourselves. And so I think, you know, embracing a, a really wide range of emotions and thinking of our emotional lives as complex things is in part also accepting ourselves as complex things.
1: Okay. So, um... I think we are out of time. Uh, so let me just ask the last sort of final brief question, uh, which is, uh, where, what are you working on now? I mean, are you doing more work in the emotions or have you turned to some other aspect of your research interests?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I I'm still I still feel like I'm in kind of like the afterglow of the book, so I'm doing most of the stuff that I'm doing is you know trying to work on um, help promote the book and that sort of stuff. But I I have this tendency because I have sort of two parts of my philosophical personality. Uh, I have the work that I do on emotions, and then I have my more historically oriented work, and I always go back and forth between them. Mm-hmm. So I you know after I wrote my first book, uh, it was you know all about emotions, and I said I got to have a break, and then I turned. And I did a bunch of, you know, historically oriented stuff. So I worked on Kant mostly. Uh, so I did a bunch of I was like, I got to go back to my really obscure Kant stuff and do a bunch of history things. So I have the sense that that's what I'm going to do this time, too. So now that the book is out and, and over, I think it's probably time for me to dive back into my other pool and uh, go play over in the history of philosophy for a while.
1: Cool. And and Kant is famously such an emotional
2: guy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Such a tension in my life. I know. You probably
1: <laughs> couldn't find somebody farther from your own. Business.
2: I know. I know.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thanks for talking with us on New Books and Philosophy and uh, good luck with your your, your work. And Thank it's you. been a pleasure talking with you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Krista Thomason associate professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College. We've been talking about her new book, Dancing with the Devil, Why Bad Feelings Make Life Good, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.